Court is now in session with your host, Peter Briggs. Welcome to the Lawyers to Lay People podcast, a conversation-based podcast featuring interviews with some of Georgia's top lawyers, where we, in an easy-to-understand non-lawyerly way, answer the questions that are on the minds of you, the layperson. In this podcast, we talk to specialists in a particular field of law to hear directly from them as to what clients typically ask them and what they should be asking. I'm your host, Peter Bricks. A little about me, I'm a personal injury and bankruptcy attorney as well as a registered mediator currently practicing in Atlanta, Georgia. I graduated law school in 2006 from Georgia State University, and I've been practicing as a lawyer here for almost 17 years. Our guest today is Stephen Lefkoff. Stephen is a graduate of the University of Illinois and then the University of Georgia School of Law. He founded Lefkoff Law in 2017, and the firm provides general representation to businesses and business owners with a particular focus in the motor vehicle industry. Stephen developed a unique monthly membership program and a 90-video series on car law in Georgia that that he makes available for free through Lefkoff Law and GeorgiaCarLaw.com. Stephen was awarded the 2002 Legal Innovator of the Year by the Daily Report newspaper and has been named as Georgia Super Lawyer Rising Star five years in a row. He has also presented to over 500 motor vehicle dealers at events, to hundreds of attorneys at Georgia Continuing Legal Education events, and before a national audience of attorneys at the 2021 Maximum Lawyer Conference. Okay, welcome to the uh, podcast, Stephen. Thank you for joining us today. Thank Uh, you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. One of the things you do is on your website, you offer training and consultation for magistrate court. Can you first off explain to everyone what is magistrate court? Yeah, no problem. And and it's important to note first that magistrate court is similar if you think about people's court, right? It's where folks go on their own or as businesses representing themselves generally. There's not a ton of attorneys in magistrate court to handle their own problems without Uh, the complication of the bigger courts, the state or superior courts. And in Georgia, the limit for magistrate court is $15,000. So if you have a problem that's a $100,000 problem, you would have to go to one of the bigger courts. But as long as you're under 15, you have the choice of going to magistrate court. And the training program you offer, is that really geared towards uh, businesses as far as on the plaintiff side doing collection or individuals and one-off cases? What, What is it really geared towards? So it's a great question. It's actually designed for all of it, for businesses in plaintiff's collection matters, businesses in defense cases, and individuals on both sides of the aisle as well. We have found that for business owners and businesses, they tend to be in court more often. So the training's a little bit different as we're training employees to be able to represent the business in various cases versus the one-off neighbor case or car problem, that's a consumer case where somebody had an issue or that kind of stuff where they, let's say, loaned some money to a friend and never got paid back. Hopefully in those cases, it's the only time you'll ever be in court. And so in that case, we're not teaching for long-term court appearances. We're teaching for just this one case. Now, I'd imagine you're in magistrate court a decent bit. That probably what is what prompted you to come up with this uh, concept, maybe things you observe personally watching other cases. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. I was watching two pro se litigants, those two people that did not have an attorney arguing their case. And the plaintiff, the plaintiff's case should have taken about five minutes. And instead it took two hours to present the case. And it involved yelling and it involved crying and it involved finger pointing. 
And the judge got so frustrated and so, frankly, angry at the plaintiff that the judge ended up ruling against the plaintiff in the case. And I sat there thinking, oh, my gosh, if this person only had a little bit of training, they could have walked out with a $6,000 judgment because, frankly, the plaintiff should have won the case. But the emotional piece and the presentation of the case was so poor that the judge got so frustrated and just ruled against the plaintiff. And I thought that this should not be the case. There shouldn't be a scenario where somebody truly doesn't know what to do and as a result loses. I know it happens, but I'm doing my best to try and solve that problem. And just explain to everyone exactly how long a magistrate court case typically uh, goes as well as what happens, how it gets started, and all the things that happen along the way. Sure. So a magistrate court case tends to be somewhere between three to six months long, generally. Uh, different counties, it takes different amount of time, but it always starts with a lawsuit filed by a plaintiff. The plaintiff is the party that files the lawsuit. That could be an individual or a company, whoever it is that's suing the other side. The plaintiff files a lawsuit, and I recommend that all plaintiffs in magistrate court doing this themselves go to the court's clerk's office and uses the form that's prescribed by the Georgia Magistrate Council. They have a pretty simple form to fill out. I, I don't think a pro se party should be reinventing the wheel like us lawyers like to do. So go into the court clerk's office, fill out the form, pay the costs to file the lawsuit, and pay a service fee. In Georgia, we require personal service. That means actually the sheriff, marshal, or a private process server will go to the home or the business of the defendant, the person that's being sued or the business being sued, and actually hand them the lawsuit. And it's not as dramatic as the movies, you know, you got served kind of thing, but it's the same idea that somebody is actually handing the lawsuit to the person that's being served or in the case of the business or even a home to a representative that meets all kinds of qualifications. Then the defendant who has now been served has usually 30 days to file an answer with the court. That's in a standard civil lawsuit. What I mean by that is where somebody is suing for money, where you have an eviction case or a foreclosure case or other kind of weird cases that 30 days may be much shorter, but generally it's 30 days. If they file an answer in the 30 days, then the case gets set for trial. If they don't file an answer in the 30 days, they have an extra 15 days under Georgia law to file an answer and pay certain costs to the court clerk. If they do that, then the case gets set for trial. If they don't file an answer in those now 45 days, then the defendant is in default. And the basic uh, definition, I guess, that I would give to a pro se person, to someone without an attorney, is it means that the defendant loses. They have admitted all of the allegations in the plaintiff's complaint, meaning they say, yep, all that's true. And I owe the plaintiff the amount of money that the plaintiff is looking for. And that's all because the defendant did not file an answer. If we go back for a second to the scenario where they actually do file an answer, which is more common, then in most counties, the case is set for trial. That's a pretty short, very simple trial. You show up to the court. It's the whole calendar, what we call the calendar, might have five to 10 different cases on it, and it may take two or three hours total. Some counties, Fulton's one of them, have now started requiring many cases go to mediation before the trial. So the defendant might file an answer, and then two weeks or three weeks later, 
you might get a notice in the mail saying on this date at this time, you need to go to the mediation office and have a mediation. And then if the mediation is unsuccessful, meaning there's no settlement, then the case gets set for a trial. Where there is no mediation before, and I'll make this quick because I know this is really long-winded, but where there is no mediation before, on some date before, most of the time, the judge at the trial, on the trial date, will send the parties out into the hall to talk about their case and tell them things like, listen, you may not want me to make a decision because I choose a winner and a loser. And if you go and settle the case beforehand, you have a chance to both kind of be winners and both kind of be losers. You may not get everything you want, but you're going to get something. And that may be better than getting nothing if you let me decide the case. So I will tell you, uh, I have filed some cases in magistrate court. And when I do that, sometimes I've been thinking, is this, should I be in magistrate court or not based off the amount of the case value? Or do I want to get some discovery? Also, the fact it can be appealed. So why don't you just explain some of the pros and cons about bringing a case in magistrate court? Sure. Well, let's start with if you want more than $15,000, you can't bring it in magistrate court. That is what we call the jurisdictional limit of the court. It's fifteen grand. So if you have a case and you think you're entitled to twenty or $25,000 or thirty or more $1,000, then you shouldn't even start in magistrate court. There's a caveat I'll get to in a second on that. But- that's leave all your listeners hanging. But that's so that's the the initial bright line rule. If you're under 15,000, you actually have a choice. You don't have to go to magistrate court. You could file in state or even superior court if you want to. The benefits to being a magistrate court are it number one, it's much faster. So where I gave that timeline before, and you're looking at a three to six month time frame from when you filed the lawsuit to when you've had the trial. If you're in state or superior court, you have six months of discovery where you're not even close to trial yet. You haven't gone through motions. You haven't done anything. You have a, a pure six-month period to gather information and gather documents. You don't get that in magistrate court. There's a good and a bad. The good is you're moving quickly to get your case resolved. The bad is you might actually want to go through discovery. You might want to try and get documents and information from the other side, and you don't normally have the right to do that in magistrate court. Now that's, so that's one piece. The other is that it's a lot easier to handle your case. Remember when I said a while ago that you would walk into the court clerk's office and get the form for a complaint. The magistrate court clerk's office have many, many more forms available to you to get done what you want to get done. If you walk into a state or superior court clerk's office, you, you might be harder pressed to find some of these forms because they expect in those courts, you know what you're doing. So that's that's really kind of the biggest, those are the biggest differences. It's also, if you have an attorney, it's more expensive to be in state or superior court versus magistrate court. And a lot of that is because of the speed and the discovery. So your attorney's fees are way, way less in small claims than they are in the bigger courts. Now, back to that initial thing I said before about the 15,000 limit. You might have a $20,000 case that you could still file in magistrate court if you are voluntarily willing to accept 15 or less. You do not have to go for your full 20,000 in the 20,000 case. You can choose to go for 15. So keep that in mind if you decide, hey, I do want to be cheaper, I do want to be faster, and I do want to be more efficient. Yeah, those are all great points. I actually 
have had one case before that was just over 15,000 that for some of the reasons you cited, I did bring in magistrate court. Now, um, I used to do a lot of bankruptcy work and I'd kind of be amazed sometimes at the default judgments I would see as well as, um, sometimes clients coming to me and telling me that, uh, yeah, I got served and I called the plaintiff or plaintiff lawyer. And I just thought that that resolved it. You know, they didn't file an answer, uh, even though they got served, you know, what are some of the common mistakes you see and what's kind of the most important thing you should know as a defendant, if you get served with a lawsuit? So what you just said is probably the most common because you don't know what to do. And it's more common, believe it or not, I've seen with business owners than it is with individuals. A lot of business owners, a manager gets this thing in the mail, they put it in a drawer, they put it on a stack somewhere and then it sits on the desk. And then six months later, they get an order or a judgment because they've lost. And they're like, what is this? Where'd this come from? And then they go through that stack of mail that's been sitting in the corner of the desk for six months and they find the lawsuit. So I do see that a lot. Another thing I see, and this actually happened about three weeks ago or so, we won a case because of this, was somebody appears late at court. Okay. It's very important. This is like, Court 101, I would say, and us lawyers, we know about this, but a lot of pro se litigants don't. If court is at nine o'clock, you got to be there by nine o'clock, right? Like I would tell you to be there by 845 to make sure. And Atlanta traffic is insanity. So plan to be there at 830 even so that you're there by nine, right? So many times I see people show up at 905, 910, 930. I've seen someone show up at 10 o'clock for a case that was called at nine o'clock. Some judges will give an extra 15 minutes, let's say, because they know traffic stinks in Atlanta. And they'll say, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call the calendar now, it's nine o'clock, nobody's there. They say, well, okay, I'm gonna call it again at 9.15. And if they're still not here, then they lose. But I'm gonna give them a little bit of grace period. There are other judges though, and this was the one I was in about a month ago, where it was 9.03, the calendar was called, at 9.04, she said, my case. I said, Your Honor, I'm here for the defendant. She said, is the plaintiff present in the court? I, I looked around, didn't see the plaintiff. She didn't either. And nobody stood up and said, here. And she said, okay, Mr. Lefkoff, what would you like me to do? And I said, Judge, I'd like you to dismiss the plaintiff's case because plaintiff is not here. And at 9.05, she said, not a problem. Case dismissed. Mr. Lefkoff, have a great day. And I was out of court at 9.06. That person might have showed up at 9.10. I have no idea. But by that point, their case was already lost. So just a little fun story for your listeners that uh, hammers home that point of make sure, I mean, it's simple stuff, but make sure you're on time. And to that point, uh, at least from my experience, they like to call the cases with attorneys towards the front, uh, whereas if it's two pro se litigants, they push those to the back. So if in your case that person was unrepresented, but they were facing uh, your party, which you were representing. That's why you got, you know, called right away and, and that contributed to it. So you mentioned earlier about the mediation process when you show up in court. Can you just briefly explain what, in a little more detail, like what is mediation and, and are there, is it pretty much required now in every, uh, in every county before you go to trial? So, 
It's a really good question. And there's two, I, I call them formal and informal mediation. And that's not, I don't know if that's what the courts call it or not, but there are two different kinds of mediation. A formal mediation I think of as the kind with a mediator. You have somebody who's there, who is an impartial third party that's going to listen to both sides and try, I tell my clients, try to convince you you're wrong, right? That's what I think the mediator's real job is to try and convince everyone they're wrong to freak them out and think they're going to lose. So they come to a settlement. But I, I would imagine any mediator listening to this is now cursing my name. But the reality is the mediator's job is to try and listen to both sides and think, okay, here's what I think the judge might do. Here's where there are holes in your case. And here's why I think you should consider their offer. And we'll then bounce offers back and forth, right? How much are you willing to pay? How much do you require? How much money will you accept, right? What is the remedy? And one of the nice things about mediation, unlike being in trial, is you can get remedies that do not involve money, okay? Like, I want that piece of property back. Or how about I give you this instead of money because I don't have the money, right? No judge can make you do that in magistrate court. All they can do is issue a sheet of paper that has a money amount on it. So that's that's a side benefit of mediation. Informal mediation, though, is a little bit different. A lot of times the judges will just tell the parties to go outside in the hall and talk about your case. There's no mediator. There's no separate rooms. There's no bouncing back and forth of a third party impartial person giving you know everybody their opinions and thoughts on the case. There's just two parties out in the hall talking. <laughs> Excuse me. And that's a more informal process. It usually takes way less time. And that's normally what most counties require. Transition a little bit to your work as a car dealer, uh, uh, sorry, representing car dealers. Do you, uh, the kind of cases you're handling for them, is that, uh, how, how many, how often is that in magistrate court or most of those state superior court cases? The majority of them are in magistrate court. Most car cases that I come across, at least in my firm, are filed by consumers individually. They feel like they've been wronged. They're unhappy about the condition of a car. There was a disclosure issue or there was a problem when they went to try and trade it in. And they want to get their day in court and they want to get money back from the dealer. And it makes sense because in a lot of these cases, the financials don't make sense for an attorney to take on as the plaintiff's attorney, right? How are you going to get paid? when the whole claim is $6,000, how much is the attorney actually gonna get paid to take that case? So they don't, right? You see billboard lawyers, the billboards say $3 million, $4 million, $10 million. That doesn't make any sense. And, and that's not what happens in smaller car cases. So you don't have the attorney representation that you normally would. And that's why there many of them are in small claims court. So on your website, you have a service called The Driveway. Uh, tell tell us exactly what that's about, how that works. All right. So I don't know if I don't know if the listeners have video or only audio. I know we're on video right now, but I have the biggest grin on my face when you say that because it's my like it's my third child. I have two kids at home. <laughs> child number three is the driveway. Let's call it that. So the drive the driveway is our monthly legal membership program for car companies. It's specifically for dealers finance providers, repair companies, repo, auction, and even manufacturers. We designed it to provide 
extra benefits to those companies because they're really our firm's bread and butter and to help control their monthly spend on legal services. It's a once a month credit card build auto bill program that provides in different in different tiers. There are three tiers, but there's legal hours, there's Zoom office hours, there's webinars, there's news updates, there's 90 videos on car law in Georgia. There's over 50 different forms and contracts that they could generate just by clicking a button 24-7. So let's say a dealer has an irate customer on a Saturday afternoon and can't get a hold of us, but they've resolved the case. They can go into their portal, press one button, and create a settlement agreement and a car case that they can have the customer sign without having to worry, okay, am I protected? Am I not protected? That kind of stuff. And it has all of that packaged in a, I think, a beautiful backend system. There's messaging, there's a messaging platform where we don't charge our clients for emails through the messaging platform. There's new consults that we don't charge for. There's a whole, I could go on for four hours. How long do we have here, Peter? (laughs) (laughs) We've still got a few more minutes. Uh, So when you do wind up litigating on their behalf, we mentioned, you know, the defense work you're doing in magistrate court. Uh, what about on the plaintiff side? How, how does that, is that really just magistrate court collections or how, how much more involved is it than that? So the defense work is far more common for the car dealers. Uh, the plaintiff's work, it, it goes in two different directions. There's either collections work against the consumers which believe it or not, does not happen that often. Most of the dealers understand that, especially in a lot of, in a lot of independent dealer circumstances, a collection case isn't actually going to lead to anything. You might get a judgment, but it's worth a piece of paper. It's not going to result in any recovery. So we don't we actually don't do a lot of collection work. We farm that out to a lot of other collection firms. Uh, the other plaintiff's work that we see more often, is for the finance companies. And that's actually sometimes against dealers where you have defaulting dealers or defunct dealers or different fraud committed by dealers, which happens every so often, less than people probably think when they think of car dealers, but it does happen every so often. And so sometimes we are in situations where we're representing a motor vehicle finance company against a dealer. Now, I would say this is kind of a niche practice area. How, how did you get involved in that? Now, that's a story. Uh, I'll keep it I'll keep it brief or try to for your listeners. But when I I was never a car and driver subscriber. Let's start there. I'm not a car guy. It's not a thing for me. Um, but when I started practicing law at the firm I started at, they had a, a broad door law practice, right? If it, I don't know how familiar your listeners are, but if it walked in the door, they took it. That was basically what, what we, what I called it was door law. And one of the areas that the firm had, and it was a relatively small area was in representing car dealers. And my undergraduate degree was in finance at the university of Illinois. Ding. Uh, but that was where my undergraduate degree was. And so my brain kind of lent itself to a lot of the terms, the calculations, the interest, the the car business model and how it all worked, more so than the divorce and the criminal law and the other areas of practice that they handled at the firm. So I started growing that practice and really focusing on it. And 
in 2017, when I started my own practice, I was fortunate that a number of those clients came with me and I kind of went to the drawing board and said, oh, this is kind of cool. How can I make a name for myself? Not in a practice area, right? Which is what most attorneys do, right? I'm a bankruptcy attorney. I'm a personal injury attorney. I'm a criminal defense attorney. Not exactly in that in that way, but more so that in a business niche attorney. These are the kinds of clients I represent rather than the type of work I do. Does that make sense? Certainly, certainly does. So when you are litigating, how often are you going up against someone who's pro se um, versus uh, represented by an attorney? I would say, and I don't know exact statistics, but it's probably 60-40 that maybe 60% of the cases are pro se and 40% are attorney driven. Those 40% attorney-driven cases are 90% of my work, though, if that makes sense. The, the pro se cases are fairly straightforward. It's perfect sense to me. That was actually leading into my next question, which was, uh, you know, as an attorney, uh, w- would you rather be... Uh, would you rather be dealing with someone who's pro se or would you rather be dealing uh, with an opposing counsel? I tell people all the time, I hope the other side gets an attorney. And it's not because I want to do more work or build a client more or any of the thoughts that someone might have listening to that, but it's because attorneys know the rules and they know what the law is. And when I am working on a case and they know the risks. And so when I'm working on a case and there's an attorney on the other side, we can have a legitimate and realistic conversation about the law, about the facts of what happened, and about what the risk is between the two clients to see if there is an opportunity for resolution or to set the case up for trial in a way that's fair for both parties. And you sometimes don't have that opportunity against a pro se litigant because it's a very, it's a much more emotionally driven case for that person. They feel like they've been wronged. They want their day in court. They don't know or care to know what the law really is. And they think they're right no matter what. And that can sometimes be very challenging. Well, uh, that was a great discussion. I want to thank our guest, Stephen Lefkoff of Lefkoff Law for joining us on this podcast. And I want to thank you for listening. You can find Stephen at lefkofflaw.com. That's L-E-F-K-O-F-F-L-A-W.com. And he also has a website, georgiacarlaw.com. You can visit me online at brickslaw.com. That's B-R-I-C-K-S-L-A-W.com. You can also rate, review uh, us wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. All of our contact information can be found at the link below. And for more details, you can personally email me at peter at brickslaw.com.